0: Another year has passed, and yes, this is one of those appeals for timely end-of-the-tax-year donations. Please know that your support is much appreciated, and if you want to help us continue with these weekly Crossroads podcasts, consider making a donation. You can go to the following website and choose an option for making a gift that will help us in 2024, religionunplugged.com slash Donate. Religionunplugged.com slash donate. Thank you very much for your help. This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast.
1: Well, we can't complain as... 2023 winds down that religion has not been in the news it's all over the news especially with the top story according to the religion news association being incidents of hate against jews and muslims skyrocketing after the october 7th attack by hamas against israel that story is all about religion greetings and welcome to crossroads with terry mattingly i'm todd wilkin thanks for tuning us in Terry is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So did the Religion News Association send out its poll results too early this year?
0: That's a a great question. You know, there's a tradition in Washington that people if they want to cover up something that's happening to their organization let's say you are a a president who's falling further and further behind in the polls and you fall down a flight of steps outside air force one and this is on all the news and you want to get it off you you, you announce something big on friday you, you try to get people to, to look that direction and hide something bigger. You could make a case that, looking back on this year, I mean, obviously, the Hamas attack on Israel and the resulting siege of Gaza is a massive international story. Any time that journalists have valid reasons to make references to Armageddon, it's probably a big story. But when we look back on this, People are going to wonder if Pope Francis released this document, this very confusing, easy-to-misunderstand document about the blessing of same-sex couples. And we'll get into the details of all that as we discuss this. Some people are going to wonder if he did that to cover up the fact that there are so many other scandals happening in the Vatican right now. You've just had a cardinal sentenced in a very complicated trial involving land and money and abuse of authority. Some people were calling it the trial of the century in the Roman Catholic Church. Some people wondered if the Pope kind of needed to point away and say, over here, over here. With this document that they had to know the press would go nuts for. At the same time, when I evaluated the Religion News Association ballot for this year, I thought there should have been an item that specifically said German bishops plunge ahead and approve priests granting blessing prayers and even vague rights, as long as they don't resemble marriage, whatever that means. I thought that the German bishops plunging ahead on the issue of same-sex blessings was maybe the number two story of the year, and there wasn't a wording specifically about that. There was a reference to the synod on synodality, of course, and that was big, and there were references to Canterbury proceeding with same-sex blessings, one of the The last times Rome and the Church of England did the same thing in the same year, almost at the same time, on what used to be called Twitter, I sent out a post that kind of jokingly said, hey, things are really looking up for reunion between the Church of England and the Church of Rome. And I was only kind of half joking with that. But here, as as a Lutheran, let me ask you this question. Was the Reformation a pretty big story when it happened, or did that only become apparent a couple of decades later?
1: Well, I think it was, depending on when you mark the beginning of the Reformation, yeah. it would have been a minor story. No, I don't a, think anyone could anticipate what would become of
0: it. Exactly. It was a minor story at the time it happened. The German bishops here, what is it about Germany, by the way? I mean, the German bishops specifically plunging ahead of Rome on the decision to bless unions could be seen as a hint of what was to come. But I don't think anybody thought that within a matter of weeks, a few months, that the Vatican would come out with an almost identical approach to the issue. And Is that a counter-Reformation to the counter-Reformation to the Reformation? You know, I don't know what label we put on this. But I believe that in the next year, and I know we always end by looking at big stories for next year, so here's a hint of what could happen. All over the world, we are now going to have couples whose relationships do not fit within the doctrines of the Catholic Catechism. Now that can be people living together out of wedlock. That can be same-sex couples living together or married outside of Catholic law. That can be divorced couples who have re-entered church life without the approval, the legal canon law approval of the Catholic Church. We're going to have a lot of couples show up, call their priest, and say, we would like to schedule a blessing for the two of us. And I know the Vatican document says you're not going to bless our relationship, but would you mind if a couple of our friends and family attended this at the same time? And you're going to end up with these people standing before a priest, and the priest saying blessing prayers over them. and the difference between this and a blessing of their relationship is going to be very hard to discern. And a lot of priests are going to say no. A lot of bishops are going to say no. We're not going to do this. But yet the Vatican language seems to say, You know, church leaders shouldn't get too morally specific about these things. We say blessings over all kinds of things. Why can't we bless these people? So you know that if the Vatican had put this document out and that had been written as an item in the poll for 23, since the event occurred, obviously, in 23, would that have been the number one story? I don't think it would have been number one over Israel versus Hamas, but I think it's guaranteed it would have been number two. You
1: are not a fan of the way that the RNA has broken this list up into U.S. and international.
0: Yeah, I I just think, for one thing, it makes it harder for journalists to write when they have a specific word count limit. I mean, you can no longer cover all 10 of both lists. I submitted my column on the poll last night, and I just was only able to do the top five of each. And you end up leaving some important things out that you want to discuss, or that I want to discuss. A very important Supreme Court case in 303 Creative, for example. But is Hamas versus Israel, is that an American story or an international story if you're in the Jewish Student Union at Harvard? Well, obviously it's both. Is it an American story or an international story when the three college presidents sat before Congress and took some tough questions? I don't think they need the two separate lists. And I also, I'm remembering the words of the late, great George Cornell, the legendary Associated Press religion writer for three plus decades. George told me back when I was first entering the field of religion writing, George told me that he had kept a stack of AP stories, before the internet, obviously, he had kept a stack of copies of the top 10 stories of the year, not religion stories of the year, global stories of the year, the biggest 10 stories in the world, according to the Associated Press, and that he had done this for many years, and that he hardly ever saw a year in which at least five of those stories, or sometimes more, five was kind of the ceiling that he set, didn't include clear religious content and references. That's how important religion is to the shaping of world affairs and events in the world. And this is what Get Religion for 20 years has called a ghost. We frequently have stories where people kind of skip over the religion element of important stories. Well, this is a year when that's impossible to do with Hamas and Israel. To some degree, the lead of this story is written in the foundation documents of Hamas, which is that Israel must be erased from the map in order for justice to come for the Palestinian people. And they're committed to the erasing of Israel. So that's a religion story. And that's the number one story of the year. And it has so many angles that I know they would have trouble writing that into a single, crisp item. So to some degree, I would have separated the war—and this is kind of what they did, the way it was divided up— I would have separated the war itself from the stunning rise in antisemitism in the United States, because I think that's where the rise has been so shocking. I mean, anti-Semitism has been a huge story in Europe now for several decades. I mean, when I was living in West Palm Beach, Florida, in, I believe this interview took place in 2003, I was doing an interview with some young Jewish women from West Palm Beach who had accepted to take part in a program where they would go and live in Israel, All expenses paid for three months. And one of the young women said that, you know, I'm not planning on coming back, I'm planning on taking this offer going there, but I intend to get a job and stay in Israel. And I said, why do you feel so certain that you're going to be able to get a job in Israel? And her friends all began laughing outrageously. And I thought to myself, I said to them, okay, what did I miss? What's the point here? And they all said, she speaks French. I went, okay, what does that have to do with it? And they said, every real estate company in Israel is struggling to be able to hire enough people to speak French to people who are trying to flee France and move to Israel because of the rising waves of anti-Semitic activity in France. Now, that was two decades ago. And, of course, we watch events in Europe year after year after year. But this is not a new story. It's an ancient story. It's an ancient story. It's a modern story. It's a present story. It'll be a story next year. But the Hamas attack was the greatest attack and murder of Jewish people since the Holocaust. And any time you have that in the lead. That's your number
1: one story of the year. So, Terry, number two isn't so much a story as it is, and they really kind of packed it full of a number of stories, including some efforts on the part of lawmakers to block military advancement because of the current policy of abortion support in the U.S. military how would you write a lead for number two, which is basically the aftermath of Roe v. Wade?
0: Yep. Why is it number two? I think they needed to be more honest and say debates about the fall of Roe versus Wade have Democrats a great chance to help them in the next elections. I think that's what the voters were thinking, that this is a very controversial issue. It's still controversial. It's affecting everything. But most importantly, it's affecting American politics. And when in doubt, politics is the most important thing in the world. So, yeah, when I read that one, I thought, okay, folks, go ahead and say what you're thinking. This is going to be the hot issue that the Democrats will attempt to use in the next election, especially if they're trying to leave President Joe Biden in his basement safe from questions by reporters and attempt to run him again to where he would finish his next term at age 86. And the age, they're gonna do everything they can to avoid the age issue, and I believe abortion will be the angle that they go. Now, if you look at the second question from the viewpoint of Get Religion and what we've written for many years now, I've argued all along that the biggest question in American life is why Americans are so divided on what they want to see legally about abortion. What would it take to get a European-style compromise on abortion past both Democrat leaders and Republicans? Both sides have strong voices in their base that want zero compromise on this issue. When, if you study the polls, and this goes all the way back into a book that James Davis and Hunter wrote almost 20 years ago called Before the Shooting Begins, and there's a chapter analyzing the total hypocrisy of what Americans say they believe about abortion, which many have cynically boiled down to. I oppose abortions in all situations except the one my family is facing right now. But if you went for the norm, what Americans seem to want, it would be they would want a ban on abortion in the second and third trimesters, and Americans are very uncomfortable with the use of abortion as some sort of mere birth control. And this is very similar to what some nations in Europe have. But yet, you can't pass that formula with the Democratic Party, and you can't pass that formula with a lot of people in the Republican Party as a legal issue, as a matter for what you're going to try to pass in Ohio in legislation. And so what's really going on in this second question is what Get Religion's been predicting for a long time. If Roe ever fell, Americans are going to have to decide state by state what kind of compromise they are willing to accept from their party leaderships. What are Democrats going to be willing to accept? What are Democratic donors going to be willing to accept? What are Republicans going to be willing to accept? What will the religious right and its powerful grassroots members? And I would have to include myself in that. What kind of compromise is possible? Now, looming over all that, is the fact that we now have media, niche, advocacy-based media, driving American discourse. And the media on the left and the right is going to do what they do. They're going to do everything they can to prevent sane, orderly, tolerant discourse toward achieving a compromise. On any issue, and especially on one as emotional as this. But stop and think about this. I know this is kind of a loaded way of stating it, and it makes my friends who are still registered Democrats very mad when I say this, and it makes my friends who are registered Republicans very mad, and I'm a registered third-party voter. And simply this, can anybody imagine America achieving a culture that favors life from conception to natural death. Would it be possible to achieve that ultimate goal without the cooperation of Democrats and Republicans on legislation? How are you going to achieve a final target for legislation in this nation without both parties agreeing to it? Or if you're going to go for states a statewide approach as we are now, it's where we are with the fall of Roe, it's up to the states. How do you achieve a compromised piece of legislation in Ohio without the involvement of Democrats and Republicans? Or look south, look way south to Louisiana. What role have pro-life Democrats played in the laws of Louisiana? And the simple answer to that is They wrote it. They played a massive role. So how do we accomplish progress on issues this divisive in a culture in which we seem to have banned compromise or what I call sane discussions of compromise? So that to me is what's looming behind this number two choice. And if the pope had put his question out soon, I would have rewritten that second one a lot in my own column, and I would have had that one number three. I would have had Hamas, Israel, one, the Pope, and same-sex unions number two, and I would have had post-Roe is still gonna be number three.
1: The number three in the list is the massive split in the United Methodist Church, but that's been a long time coming.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I started covering that story in the early 80s in Denver when the first openly gay United Methodist minister came out of the closet and was defended by his bishops, and they've been at war ever since. What I think is most important about number three, look beyond the Methodists. Isn't the structure of the United Methodist split, which is essentially a battle between more conservative Methodists in Africa, Asia, and in the growing parts of the church in the United States versus the encamped fortress of institutional leaders that lead the denomination, which tend to be liberal, white, American, etc. It's a global church, but its leadership structures are primarily based in America. Isn't that battle in the United Methodist Church identical to what we are also seeing in the Anglican Communion over the recent decades? Growing churches in the global south versus collapsing churches in the more liberal, rich countries of the West? And isn't that kind of what we're now seeing with the Roman Catholic Church, between the progressive churches of the declining nations of Europe. And I'm including Pope Francis in that. While everyone thinks of him as being from South America, his heritage is completely Italian and he's very European in the way he conducts himself and the way he thinks and who he picks to key positions if you follow his appointments. So to some degree, looming over that third item, the United Methodist Church Divorce, is the old and very important story of the next Christendom, to use a famous book title and cover story from the Atlantic Monthly all the way back in the 1990s. The growing churches of the global south pitted against the rich powerful, institutionalized, frozen churches of the West. That's the same story now that's emerging in Rome. It's what's happening with Anglicanism, and it's what's happening in Methodism. I just wish the press would be more honest about the fact that there's much more to this than the fight over LGBTQ plus issues. In the Methodist Church, there are bishops who've denied the Trinity. There are bishops who have said incredibly strange things about Christology, and a lot of other very important issues, issues related to salvation and the nature of Christ, etc. But, you know, that's not as sexy as a headline about LGBTQ rights, but it's in there, and it's a part of this global story behind what, in this question, in this item in the poll was stated as an American story, essentially.
1: Terry, number four is debates over sexuality and the rights of transgender persons, royal, local, and national politics. What I found interesting there is that in the last mm-hmm. sentence of their blurb, they admitted that not only do religious conservatives exist, that's easy, but they acknowledge the existence of religiously progressives.
0: Yeah, they, they basically had to admit That all of this at the level of religion is a doctrinal question, and that there are people who are in favor of centuries of Christian doctrines on these topics and those who are opposed. Which brings us back to that old James Davison-Hunter split between the camp of the Orthodox and the camp of the Progressives. The camp of the Orthodox believe that there are eternal transcendent truths on certain doctrinal matters, And the camp of the progressives believes that doctrine is essentially personal, experiential, and evolving. And that's really what's written there. Now, the question of, okay, that's fine as a doctrinal question. What do we do with that in law? And that's where this really is the trans question. They had to have a trans question. And this is it, the the way they're wording it. I was thinking of some things to look ahead. Once again, let me go ahead and hint at where this is going. What I see in that fourth question, the sexuality, transgender, libraries, schools, I see several different stories. One, watch in the year ahead for the beginning of class action lawsuits by people who are de-transitioning and do not believe they were told accurately what the process was going to do to them medically and in terms of their health and they're going to argue that they weren't actually treated for their mental health issues, they were just pushed straight to gender transition. The second thing is watch for lawsuits now involving women's sports and whether DNA men can compete in women's sports. I think that's going to start hitting courts. And I think there'll be a religious component to some of that, just as we will see a religious component in sports battles over LGBTQ issues as well. And then finally, the big story ultimately here, and I think it's going to start ratcheting up more every year. How in the world do you do public schools and public libraries with government money without having some very well-thought-out policies on parental rights and parental freedom in terms of what happens to parents who don't agree with what's being taught their children in public institutions. And in that case, keep your eye on Muslims. Just as we saw this year in Maryland, when a coalition starts developing that involves evangelical Christians, traditional Catholics, Eastern Orthodox believers, orthodox jews and traditional muslims when that coalition starts showing up at school board meetings that's going to be a story
1: number five is kind of the perfect marriage <laughs> of um, and again they they admit that religious progressives exist it's a perfect marriage of politics and religion
0: they're trying to i mean this is the one that i you know when i read it i laughed out loud. Like, this is politics is the most important thing in the world Religion is affecting everybody. Here it all is in one paragraph, vote for it. And we don't know what's gonna happen legally involving Donald Trump. We saw Colorado now is trying to knock him off the ballot. That's gonna go to court. His other issues are gonna go to court. We don't know at what point the Democrats are going to say, okay, what do we do about Joe Biden? Try to imagine in the Democratic Party someone having the guts to say, if we're not running Joe Biden, what is our reason for not running an African-American woman who is currently vice president? I don't know what the religion angle will be there, but I guarantee you it will show up. Let's just wave our hands at number five and say politics is the most important thing in the world. Here we go.
1: So what would you want to say about Six through ten on the list. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, let's run through them real quick because there's some important stuff in here. One, the um, the Speaker of the House went up to number six, in large part because I think he is freaking out many people with his open Southern Baptist convictions and the way he states things. They are going to have to learn a little bit about Calvinism if they're going to cover this guy. He says things all the time to religious audiences about, and he frames it in very Reformed theological terms, and the press goes nuts because that leaps straight to Christian nationalism, it was very important that Pope Francis struck down the bishop of Tyler, Joseph Strickland, for essentially saying, the pope wants to change our doctrine, I'm a bishop in apostolic succession, I don't want that. And the fact that he said that over and over and over on the Internet, to some degree, number seven is about the fact that the Pope can't control the Internet. He tried to in his synod on Synodality. They tried to shut people up in terms of releasing their statements online. That didn't work all that well. And what they linked to it, as they well should, the fact that he stripped some of the powers of the retired American Cardinal Raymond Burke that's all about the internet too because burke is the former head of the vatican like supreme court for doctrine and canon law issues this guy knows how to play the game but he played it on the internet as well so that's a big one i was amazed that the asbury university revival got into the top 10. that's a blatantly religious issue of course when the new york times covered it. It had to have a gay and lesbian angle to it as well. But I don't know if Asbury would have been in my top 10 this year or not, but I'm glad it's there. Then here's the one that I would have moved way up because it's the flip side of the sexual revolution question with the trans rights issues and all that. The U S Supreme court decision in 303 creative, I would agree with David French, now of the New York Times, the longtime First Amendment lawyer backing religious liberty cases, he thought that was going to be the most important religious liberty case of this decade, and we'll have to see how it's enforced, but that case said a religious believer has First Amendment rights about what they do or don't say in the workplace. A Christian does not have to create content against her religious beliefs and her intellectual beliefs, and they ruled in that case based on First Amendment speech principles as much as religious liberty. So we'll see how that plays out, but I would have had that higher in the list. And then number 10 is the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest non-Catholic flock, other of course now than the biggest flock, which is non-denominational Christianity. In America. The Southern Baptist Convention still has big issues facing it on both the ordination of women, not just to senior pastorates, but ordination of women. period, and looming over it all is how do you handle the legal angles of sexual abuse cases when you're in a church where the local congregation is the ultimate authority for its actions. And so that's kind of waving the Southern Baptist flag and saying the Baptists are still fighting, vote for it. And I agree. I think that's a a top-ten story.
1: Terry, what did you make of the international religion stories, which kind of paralleled the U.S. stories and then went immediately to Pope Francis?
0: Yeah, we talked about almost everything that's in that list. I think the big one that jumps out that we haven't talked about was the Synod on Synodality itself, which essentially is a European – and Vatican-led process that some are calling Vatican III light. And the Pope tried to keep a lid on it, tried to keep it out of the, the headlines, and the question is to what degree will it attempt to change the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, or will the Pope, this Pope, continue to do what he's currently doing, which is say, I'm not changing the doctrines. I'm just changing how our priests handle these issues in terms of pastoral care. Will that continue? or It's going to be kind of hard to do that if you're going to go for the ordination of women to the permanent diaconate or married priest or something big. But once again, the big deal here will be the actual revolution issues and what approach will the Vatican end up taking. If I could jump down another one, something's going to happen in Ukraine this year. Nothing can happen in Ukraine without it having a religion angle. So I would continue to watch whether the leaders of the entire Orthodox Church worldwide, and not just the ecumenical patriarch in Istanbul, who is increasingly beginning to tell the press he's pope, something will happen in Ukraine. I don't know what it will be, but I predict we should keep an eye on it. And finally, the tragedy of nagorno Karabakh and what's happening to the Armenians, who are basically being run out of the heartland of Armenian Christianity, and this stands to me just with the ongoing issue of religious persecution around the world. And as my colleague, we call him the patriarch of the religion beat, Richard Ostling, said in a column that will run tomorrow at Get Religion, what is it going to take to get the mass media to pay attention to what's happening to Christians in Nigeria? year after year, that the persecution of the church in Nigeria just gets worse and worse and worse, and what would it take for that to get some coverage?
1: What did you make of the newsmakers list that Pope Francis naturally topped?
0: Well, of course, the Pope is going to be it if he does anything, and he did a lot of things this year. I think the issue that is looming here is the Pope's health, and the Pope has now explicitly said I'm not going to retire and so I think everybody believes the synod on synodality is the capstone of the career of Pope Francis and if he gets to do what he wants to do with the synod that's the big thing with his papacy and I agree with that so everyone's going to be watching the health of Pope Francis I will say this it's I think we should officially say at this point and what I'm going to say sounds funny but I really sort of mean it. If Pope John Paul died and there was a case made for his sainthood, I think he would officially be declared the patron saint of journalists in the world. The coverage this man gets is astonishing, and it tends to be exactly the coverage that he wants. And that's a cynical way of stating it, but I believe it's true. Did
1: the new House Speaker in the U.S. belong on that top five religion Uh, newsmakers?
0: Not yet. I mean, they're really worried about him, aren't they? I was surprised he was in the ballot, but, I mean, they're reaching maybe a little bit at that point. But let's see what happens with him. And at the moment, I'm willing to say that he could be important, but we all know that the story of next year is the White House, period.
1: What advice can you give to us to become better news consumers in 2024?
0: Well, we talked about the essay that I wrote earlier this year for the Acton Institute publication, Religion and Liberty, in which I talked about the death of the American model of the press. And I ended that piece with kind of a shrug And and let me read the last paragraph of that piece because I think it answers your question. The sobering bottom line, when seeking journalism they can trust, perhaps even news that offers balanced, accurate coverage of views other than their own, American citizens are now on their own as they search the World Wide Web. God help them. And what I meant by that is we have lots and lots of options for news now. A lot of it's excellent, a lot of it's horrible, but we not only have to try to figure out how to listen to the viewpoints of other citizens if we're ever going to have dialogues that lead to compromise and some way forward in our culture besides states' rights. But let me just ask another one, because I know this is affecting me as someone who's trying to live on a retirement income now. How many of these new publications are we going to subscribe to? How many Substack publications can you pay for, and how many of them do you actually have the time to read? So my advice to our listeners is that they continue on X, which used to be called Twitter. They'd still need that list of 10, at most 20 people that they really respect on both the left and the right. And Keep up with that amazing publication called The Free Press, when Barry Weiss, which was one of the most important voices on these issues throughout the year. Keep up with people who listen to the left and right and try to figure out what they're reading. But I have no answer for how you decide how much money you will spend and how you will manage to get all that stuff read when it shows up in your email every day. Things really were easier when there was a newspaper that bundled a lot of these topics into one package, treated them accurately and fairly, and you could just read that newspaper. Wasn't that an amazing thing to have around? Is that kind of sub-economy
1: of Substack and all those other subscription-based news sources, is that the flip side to the economic marketing model for the New York Times and increasingly so many other kind of left-leaning. Oh, well, we're going to no. write what our listeners want to hear.
0: There's a huge article that came out in The Economist this week. What was it, 7,000 words long or 17,000? I think it was 17,000 words long. Massive article on the fall of the New York Times written by the former editorial page editor. And that's the flip side of the piece that I wrote for Religion and Liberty. The economic model pushes you toward favoring the people who are paying your bills, and that's the subscribers. Preach to your choir and keep your choir happy. But how do you have a society with fair, open-minded debates toward compromise when everybody is reading Everybody's living in their little concrete information bunkers and reading only the material that they want to read. How do you get to compromise? How do you get a way forward as a culture and a nation with that? But increasingly, we need our major media to admit that they're now niche publications as well. And boy, oh boy, is that going to be the story of the 24 White House race. And a subsext of that is, Will the left be able to drive Elon Musk to shut Twitter? Will they find a way to punish him enough to shut down Twitter before the White House race? I honestly think that's going to be a story to watch in the year ahead. And a lot of the issues there will be moral, cultural, and religious.
1: It is ironic that Twitter is advertising-based, and all these other platforms have moved away from the advertiser, largely – toward the subscriber, the niche.
0: Yeah. And Musk has tried to get people to subscribe, and I don't think he has the cost down quite enough yet for enough people to sign up. But that really is, it's all about the internet, isn't it? The one thing the internet does really well is divide us into smaller and smaller interest groups and then preach to us. That's the internet economy. And that, in my opinion, in that essay I wrote for the Acton institute that's what's tearing america apart
1: terry uh, with about a minute and a half here what will be the top religion news story in 2024
0: white house of course it has to be whatever happens with religion that influences the election in 24 and if donald trump is elected it will be the end of the world as we know it if another republican is elected there's a good chance it will be the end of the world as we know it, unless that person is somehow strongly anti-Trump, and that isn't going to happen. And if a Democrat somehow is elected, the world will be safe for the sexual revolution, basically. For technical reasons, I've been reading my way backwards through almost 20 years of Get Religion material. Try to imagine doing that, like 20 million words. And I would estimate that well over... Half the comments that we have run at Get Religion on pieces, and at least 70% of those submitted, because we spike a lot of them, are all about issues involving religion and the sexual revolution. So, whatever happens, the big story in 24 will have something to do with religion, the sexual revolution, politics, and some X factor after that.
1: Terry Mattingly, a senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much.
0: Glad to be here.
1: I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next year. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly.
0: Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.